the perfect combination of versatile athleisure and training apparel has arrived. Thanks to the visionary minds of New Balance, Clutch Athletics, and Rich Paul, the designs reflect the heart of the athlete and the spirit of the community. With rising defensive football stars Will Anderson and Chase Young on the roster, Clutch Athletics brings the best innovative gear to all athletes, giving them style and performance on and off the field. Learn more and purchase Clutch Athletics at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson and Barton Simmons. It's your call for the best college football coverage. From National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between, CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Barton Simmons. I'm Chip Patterson. Dennis Dodd joining us later in the show. And Barton, we've uh, we finally got week one in the books. We've got a new AP Top 25. Did you know that the uh, preseason AP Top 25 went 24-1? and one? Uh, No, I didn't know that. Best performance by a preseason Top 25 in the poll era. Chalky. Maybe that's... Real maybe, chalky. Maybe that's a uh, reflection of... The, the top team scheduling a lot of cupcakes. Week one. <laughs> it was it was fast, and of course that only the only loss among the uh, preseason top twenty five was the Oregon Ducks, who fell to another ranked team uh, in Auburn. So uh, not a whole lot of changes. I think we saw Auburn and Wisconsin make some moves up in the polls, uh, which were released on Tuesday. Uh, the reason that we had the delayed release was because we had a little Monday night football as uh, as Louisville got off to a hot start uh, against the uh, Notre Dame team that then was able to withstand that initial, initial surge and, and pull away for a 35-17 win. So the which which way do you want to take this because you were a Louisville believer we were stacked up against each other on CBS Sports HQ make sure you watch CBS Sports HQ and also download the cover 3 podcast subscribe re- review rate it please we would like that um which which way do you want to go on this Notre Dame side or Louisville side because I feel like you've had you've visited both these programs in the last couple of years you've got a, a good line on both of them uh which which uh response do you think was uh stood out to you the most I was I, I was I would say more impressed more struck by what we saw at Louisville than than e- e- any positive or negative we saw at Notre Dame I thought that looked like a different Louisville team. Um, they, first of all, that that offense. I mean, we've seen it at App State, and they had a ton of success with it. And it's it's a tricky offense to defend, but man, that offense, I think, is going to be really tough to handle um, for teams in the ACC, especially since. Puma Pass now, I mean, yes, as they got behind, he had to, you know, he didn't always look pretty throwing the football, but uh, if he can get, take care of some ball security issues, which of which there are significant ones, but if he can protect the football a little bit better, uh, he can be a really dangerous running threat. And that, that in particular with Tutu Atwell running the, the orbit motion or the jet sweep action, uh, that, that Louisville team with the receivers that they have, they, they, they protected pretty well given Notre Dame's uh, pass rush. 
it's going to be a tough team to handle. Like I'm just telling you, like I, I was, it was a, it was a little bit of a blind faith picking the over on Louisville. I feel really good about it after watching that game. I think they're going to be a, a team other than the, you know, the Clemson's of the world. Like I think just about everyone in their schedule is going to have to really be prepared to to play that team, or, or they might lose. It was 2010, 2011, 2012. Uh, like, remember, the especially as, like, Colin Kaepernick came out, like, Pistol became really, really trendy. And I feel like we've kind of uh, – some people have, uh, you know, gotten off of it. But with Louisville wearing those blacks, it looked like uh, – it looked like App State out there. Now, uh, Juwan Pat- Puma Pass is, uh, is much faster than Taylor Lamb from uh, – from from Appalachian State, but it looked. I mean, the the way that they were running that offense out there, I I was like, wow, that's like Scott Satterfield really brought his offense. And the you mentioned the jet sweep stuff, the speed option stuff, and then they they move with some pace. They're really really efficient. They're trying to uh, they're trying they're trying to find l- running lanes with the offensive linemen getting out and moving. Like that is so encouraging for Louisville fans who felt like. They were watching uh, an offense like Bobby Petrino. Probably, I do not have the playbook in front of me, but he probably tried to put in just an offense that was way too complicated and way too complex. And this is something that uh, that seems to be just a, a perfect fit for a very, very athletic and a very, very um, fast and speedy Louisville team. It's like, let's, let's let's start hitting you on the perimeter. Let's start getting you with some misdirection. Let's put your eyes in the wrong places because we believe with some of our athletes right now that if we get a little bit of space, we can turn that into 20, 30-yard gains. Uh, the Is it Brian Brown's the defensive coordinator at yep. Louisville? Yeah, and that defense was flying and hitting hard. And I understand some of that's probably the atmosphere, but I – I take back whatever sort of negativity I had for that Louisville team. Uh, I believe that that is, that is a team that is not going to go. I will say this definitively. They are not going to go. zero and eight in ACC play. They're going to get somebody. Yeah. And they may get a couple. I mean, I just think they're, I, I went from being this team might be able to compete to this team. Just, you know, they just might out flat out be pretty, pretty good. Um, yeah, and so, We'll see that, you know, maybe that was a sleepy opening week performance for Notre Dame, obviously. Uh, well, let's 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 talk about Notre Dame. I think my the concern I had for Notre Dame heading into this season was pro- probably, and I don't even know how much I, I've verbalized this, but was the Ian Book becoming Jake Browning um, sort of transition or lack thereof. Uh, like if, if Notre Dame was going is going to be good this year, is it's a it needs to be about Ian Book becoming Ian Book 2.0, and that doesn't need to be anything dramatic, but it needs to be steps forward and not, um, not plateauing. And it that that I didn't like what I saw out of Ian Book. Ooh. Uh, I mean, did you? I did put some. Uh... I put some stock in Brian Kelly's own words and then Brady Quinn repeated it on uh, the CBS Sports HQ. 4 p.m., by the way, CBS Sports HQ. It's a it's a college football show. Uh, Barton's on it a lot. I'm on it a lot. Brady, as I mentioned. And and he was kind of echoing the, the Brian Kelly sentiment of he 
he saw a quarterback that was just a little bit too hyped up, that was trying too hard and and not really playing within himself. That Notre Dame offensive line was blowing. Like they looked great in the run game and as long as like Tony Jones Jr. I mean Jafar Armstrong got banged up and I think that he's injured and is going to miss some time, but as long as Tony Jones Jr. and that run game is able to stay going, I I believe that Ian Book's tendency to try and like take off and run, you know, just look for one receiver, then take off and run. I think that can be sort of coached into a better place. I'm not, I'm not looking at him and calling him Jake Browning just yet, but my expectations for Ian book are not, or my expectations for Ian book are not to be the reason that Notre Dame's offense is humming. Well, I mean, keep in mind the Jake Browning comparison and like that isn't, that's not a terrible knock. Um, because Washington won 10 games each of the last two years. So I'm not, I'm not saying that he could be Jake Browning and like, like my, my disappointment that he could be turning into Jake Browning is, is in reference to the idea that this could be a team that beats Michigan goes 11 and one as a college football playoff contender. Like if they're going to be that team, Ian book can't just be a guy that's, you know, throwing at uh, Chris Fink's knees on fourth and three, <laughs> yes. and and you know, leading them into the dirt. Okay, he can't be a guy that's um, just you know that is is a one read and scramble guy. I mean, he has he's got to be a poised, accurate, uh, really consistent player. And I didn't, and I I didn't see that. And, and sometimes, like, uh, with a guy like Ian Book who is like, – like Jake Fromm is a great example. Jake Fromm is – doesn't ha- – like, he, he might not have better tools physically than Ian Book. Um, but I can't remember ever seeing a play in a Georgia game where it looked like the game was moving fast for Jake Fromm. Ooh, okay. The game is always moving slow for Jake Fromm. And there was a lot of game, a lot of plays in that Louisville game where it looked like, and and there certainly was a lot of plays in that Clemson game, but there's a lot of plays in that Louisville game where it looked like things were moving fast for Ian Book. And it, it needs to slow down for him if they're going to be a playoff contender. Because that's what I, like, that's the threshold I'm talking about. They're going to be a playoff contender. If they're going to be, Eight and four or nine and three, then yeah, he can be whatever he wants to be. Like he can be, he can be the guy he was Monday night, and I'm fine with that. And they'll be eight and four or nine and three. But if they're going to be ten and two, eleven and one, and try to and you know and have a chance of beating Georgia, and you know maybe even going twelve and zero, then he's got to be something. He's he's got to show some real presence that I didn't I didn't quite see on Monday night. Is there anywhere else where you felt like there was uh, beyond – is it hinging on the quarterback position in your eyes, Notre Dame's success this season? Uh, well, I mean, the the, the defense show it was – I mean, there, there were some issues there, especially early. Uh, I mean, the linebacker position is replacing a lot from last year, a lot of experience, and they didn't, they didn't look great. But I'm not, I'm not all that worried about them because they have good players. I thought they made good adjustments. Yeah. I thought they got caught off guard and they were like, okay, whoa, 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 whoa. But it's, you know, after it's 14, 14, uh, you know, Notre Dame outscores them 21 to three the rest of the way. Louisville doesn't find the end zone again. Like that was, that seemed to be a, um, they, they were exposed a little bit and then a very good 
defensive coaching staff, shocker, you know, like very good defensive coaching staff, uh, puts in some adjustments and it seems like they shored those things up. So even though the personnel is certainly, uh, you know, before the season, we called it a step back. Now that we're in the season, I don't want to, uh, make such claims. I want to say that even though that personnel is yet to be, uh, defined in terms of its, its star power and its true game breakers up in the defensive front, I feel like it's more of a known, they're more known entities on the back end. I'm going to say that the fact that they were able to uh, get exposed a little bit, but make some in-game adjustments and shore things up, I would I would say that that's a uh, that's a check mark if I'm a Notre Dame fan on the defensive side of the ball. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, like I said, I think, um, I mean, Notre Dame wasn't like the, even last year they weren't like shutting people out on defense. Like there would, you know, there'd be a few games where they'd give up some yards and. Um, I think their 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 sticking point on defense has been sort of their calling card. Clark Lee's calling card in one year has sort of been find a way to win. Uh, we're going to find a way to win. We're going to put ourselves in a position to win. And they, you know, they they hit hit a snag early and they found a way to win. And uh, and Louisville didn't get much after. Um, one more note in the uh, the ACC since Louisville is in the ACC and uh, Notre Dame is ACC adjacent as a partial member. Um, in an open relationship in the ACC with the ACC, I guess you could say. Uh, so Florida State, as they are addressing some of the issues and the fallout from having a 31-13 lead turn into a 36-31 loss at home, uh, some of the initial blames and some of the initial blaming and the talking points have been about conditioning, specifically about uh, hydration. It's been coming from Willie Taggart, and it's be it's been coming from the Florida state offensive line, which uh, felt like they just didn't have gas in the tank at the very end, which certainly contributed to the fact that Boise state was just, uh, you know, blowing them off, blowing them off the line of scrimmage, getting into the backfield, making life tough for James Blackman. Like the, the Willie Taggart at Florida state frustrations and all of those talking points do not receive any, uh, any positive spin when something like conditioning for a game that's going to be in your home stadium all of a sudden becomes an issue against a team from Boise, Idaho. Like the you mentioned before the show, Barton. There's there's a lot to unpack with this Willie Taggart at Florida State thing. Like, are you are are you going to subscribe to the conditioning uh, blame as something that is worthy or valid? <laughs> I mean, no. How like, uh, you know how? I, I guess how would it be valid? Like, what's what? How would that validate anything? And oh, can, I, I, just, I mean, do, can I talk <laughs> recklessly? Yes, yeah, so, so I believe the strength and conditioning coach, or at least some of the um, some of the staff, is uh, still there from the Jimbo Fisher era. And I'm going to recklessly wonder if there's some drama behind the scenes. Oh yeah! <laughs> <laughs> All right, I know. Yeah, I see where your head's at. This is a uh, golly. This thing, man. This 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 just looks like it's gonna be a circus, doesn't it? Yeah. Like it's just the circus is the circus has come to town and it is it has set up shop and. The, the tent has been erected and this thing ain't going anywhere. Nope. <laughs> all, all season long. Uh, 
and today, I mean, just little things like, uh, like the D de- the defensive coordinator, um, didn't speak to the media today, uh, on a ske- regularly scheduled appearance. Um, and, uh, you know, like it's just, th- I mean, it's just all this just drama, you know, and it's like, uh, there's and and I, I, part of it is just sort of trying to come up with when you're when you're Florida State and you're as talented as you are and you're losing. I mean, you have. I mean, it's not even ex- you, you, just, you just try to figure out why you're losing. Explanations. You, explanations. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You, we're we're <laughs> and, not even asking for excuses. We need explanations. And the ex- as the as as they sort of as the as they unfurl the explanations that they are coming up with, it sounds, then it sounds like excuses and it's, and it just sort of creates this environment where everyone wants these explanations and the explanations come and the explanations are not going to make anybody feel any better about the situation. And, uh, bottom line is there just, there is no excuse to not be really good if you're Florida state. And so, uh, it's just until they get, until they're good, there's not going to be any, productive conversations that are anything more than entertaining uh about you know what this team is what's do you over under florida state after this uh boise state loss seven wins uh i mean i i'm still gonna say well i'll put it this way i got thought i thought they were gonna be eight and four I think now they're more like seven and five. So I mean, I'm I'm more at a push. Um, but if I said it at I, six, if I said it at six and a half, you would go over. Right. Okay. I think so. I, I wouldn't. I would not make that bet. But if you're forcing me to pick a side, I would probably would. Uh, I mean, the next. I, I said a lot. I said before that game that that Boise State was just a huge game to to know what this team is. And in a way, it didn't sol- it didn't answer the questions it needed to for me because they did have a really good first half, and there is I can see that offense uh, blowing the doors off somebody here or there. Uh, but ultimately, I think the dysfunction reared its head by them blowing that game, and so that's pro- I don't know. So probably I should lean under than rather than the over. Um, and South Carolina quarterback Jake Bentley uh, didn't have a great performance late in the game against North Carolina. And after the game, first an undisclosed injury. Now we find out it is a mid-foot sprain, according to Will Muschamp. Uh, he is out for an indefinite amount of time, depending on you know what the what's going to be required and what kind of recovery is going to be uh, needed for him to be able to get back into play in shape. So that forces Ryan Halinski, uh, into the starting role, a very talented, uh, freshman quarterback, a player who, you know, has, uh, was a four star, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. He, he was a borderline top 100 guy. Yeah. Um, and so, so first of all, you know, what do we, what do we know about Halinski and what's the, what what sort of the prognosis about what he can do? I mean, you got like Brian Edwards is probably an NFL talent at wide receiver, and there's weapons there on that South Carolina offense that you know 
Like Jake Bentley was throwing balls into the ground in the the fourth quarter of that game. It was a it was a bad bad finish, and I don't know if the foot injury had something to do with that. But as Helensky steps in, do you find that to be a, a spark or a significant change for the positive uh, for South Carolina, or is it a concern that now all of a sudden we're going to be sending uh, a freshman quarterback against the toughest schedule in the country? Uh, I I think. My concern here is like like so, so South Carolina fans I feel like have started to turn on Jake Bentley, and I, I understand it. Um, he's been he hasn't really progressed over the last couple of years, so I think that there is some some optimism within the fan base that okay, we got the we have the savior has arrived now. Let's get Ryan Helinski in there. Uh, here we go, and I. I I would hesitate to have that sort of an expectation about what Ryan Holinsky can do as a true freshman. There's going to be some really good moments with him, um, but you know he's not not all that mobile. Um, he does have a really, you know, uh, he has a lot of arm talent. He's got a lot of ability. He's a, he's got some great intangibles, great leadership ability. So I think there's going to be, yeah, you know, I don't think the moment's going to be too big for him. Um, but I think when you're in the SEC and when you're playing the team South Carolina has teed up on their schedule, there's you're gonna take some you're gonna take some vicious pass rush uh, bodies coming at you, and you got to be able. I think like when we when we saw Bo Nix, Bo Nix did not look did not look good for much of that game throwing the ball. But what he survived on his ability to extend plays and and use his legs. And I don't think Ryan Holinsky is going to have that luxury. And so I'm just – I think you would rather have Jake Bentley in, I'll, at least a healthy Jake Bentley. So this isn't like a net positive for South Carolina. I don't think um, – but who knows? It'll be it'll be an interesting um, interesting to watch. We – have and I bought. You know what? I don't. I don't remember when I bought it, but I bought the Jake Bentley hype. I was out here at a certain point during his seven years at South Carolina, where I was like, "Dude, Jake Bentley might be one of the three best quarterbacks in the SEC." So I'm. I might be feeling some of the, uh, you know, hell hath no fury like a lover scorned. Like I might be feeling some of the South Carolina sentiment of maybe not giving Jake Bentley a fair shake because you've been sitting around and you've been waiting for him to become, uh, to, to take flashes of great talent and performance and turn it into consistent dominance. And that jump has not happened. And so, uh, I'm, I'm glad you were able to, to cool me off a little bit. Maybe, maybe the experience would have, uh, would have done South Carolina some good, but now they've, uh, now they're going to be just wandering in the woods no bueno, my friend. No bueno I mean, whatsoever. The the South Carolina coaching staff, Will Muschamp, uh, and his and his brain trust, the guys he's hired, I think deserve a little bit of the blame for Jake Bentley's lack of development, because he's been he's a four year starter. Right. I mean, he's he is a. Uh, and, he, and he's the same guy as he was as a freshman. How does that happen? Uh, I just I don't know how that happens. And so I don't. I, I, it's hard for me to. 
it's hard for me to say that's on Jake Bentley. I mean, ultimately it, if it is, but I mean, it's hard for me not to sort of share some of that blame with that South Carolina staff because it feels like they've, they have, uh, they failed him a little bit. Mm. Coming up on the other side, bringing in Dennis Dodd. He was at uh, Auburn over Oregon. He was at Oklahoma over Houston. He's going to Clemson, Texas A&M, all that. Plus, what to expect from USC next. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The magic bullet they now have in their holster, which they will apply. Nick Saban and Jim Harbaugh make a combined $20 million this season. Those two guys alone will make $13 million more than the entire Mac. And it's our pleasure to welcome back to the Cover 3 podcast. He is the Dodd father. He's Dennis Dodd, the senior college football columnist for CBS Sports, cbssports.com, CBS Sports HQ, uh, a, a regular uh, contributor to all of our platforms, and he's been a man on the road. Dennis, we've got a lot to get to. Um, you know, you were uh, at the biggest game on Saturday. You were at the only and biggest game on Sunday, and you're heading to just an absolutely massive non-conference matchup, uh, Clemson, Texas A&M, coming up this weekend. Uh, so let's uh, let's rewind all the way back. Uh, first to that Auburn-Oregon game. You got a chance to speak with Gus Malzahn heading into the game for CBS Sports HQ, doing a lot of reporting. It was kind of crazy. Auburn had some some travel delays coming in. And, and I just, you know, as you were in that massive building in Gerald World, you know, where, <laughs> where do you think the um where, where was the moment where you thought things really started to turn from a game where Oregon looked like it was ready to have one of the biggest statement wins that we could expect to all of a sudden being left in uh, for many of us a familiar position of like well I guess Auburn just figured it out again yeah it was I mean I wrote about Bo Nix which was very easy to do you know Bo Nix the le- legend of Bo Nix Bo knows comebacks all that and you know he had been prior to that last drive, he'd been nine of 25. Uh, Oregon had held him in check. He goes four for six, 53 yards, throws a game winning touchdown pass. Okay, fine. But then when you sit back and just kind of digest the whole game, boy, I can't get over how Oregon uh, blew this and, and the ramifications of such. I mean, you're, you're sitting there, they're up 21 to six, um, controlling the game with nine minutes left in the third quarter. At that point, they, They'd left some points on the table, at least 10 in the first half. But still, you look up and it's 21 to 6, and you're like, oh boy, they're, they're matching Auburn, Auburn's physicality. 
at that point, there was none of this, you know, soft Pac-12 stuff. They were the better team. They were the more physical team. And then I, I think, you know, for better or worse, Gus, you know, went to what he likes to do best out of the spread, and that's the power running game with uh, uh, Jatarvius Whitlow and a little bit of Cam Martin. But the turning point really for me was when they had to burn those two timeouts in, I think it was a fourth quarter. It was a, it was a just very confusing time, fourth and one. Um, Justin Herbert gets knocked out. I, I mean, knocked out of the game, gets hurt, has to leave the game for a play. And while Oregon's figuring out what to do with the play and him, they burn two timeouts and, and really a, a gaffe where Justin Herbert is allowed to run back into the field if you remember, you can't go back on the field once you're knocked out of the game. You have to sit out of play. So that's somebody's fault because they had to burn their last time out in that moment. Um, and they, they went out with the backup quarterback, did not make the fourth and one. Auburn did not capitalize on the ensuing possession, but it continued. It kind of just fed this whole momentum thing for Auburn. And I, I think the Pac-12 and, and really Oregon will look back on that at the end of the year and go and maybe say, what if, you know, cause I, I thought for large stretches of the game, Oregon was the better team. Yeah. What, what is what, like, how do you feel about Mario Cristobal coming out of this game? Because yeah, you, you could nip, you could certainly, um, you know, express and talk about the disappointment in his, and, and those, some of those gaffes, um, maybe even criticize, Marcus Arroyo for some of the play calling in yeah. the second half, but there, there's also the the other side of that, which is they looked like the better team for most of the game, and yeah. he has sort of built a roster that looks like it can compete with an SEC team. So I'm curious where you are right now in sort of your opinion uh, of of where uh, Mario Cristobal is as a as a head coach. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, he's one of my favorites to begin with. Um, I, I think what happened Saturday is worthy of, of criticism because I thought they did – it was almost like they hadn't been there before. You know, when it's 21 to 6 with four minutes left, you know what you have to do. When it's 21 to 6 with nine minutes left in the third, I thought maybe they got a little bit conservative too early. But you can't, you can't run the clock then. You have to be more – you have to keep attacking. And that's what they had done to get there. They, you know, there were they, they missed a chip shot field goal in the first half. I don't know if that's coaching. 20, 20 yard field goal. Even tack that on. 24 to 6. Just tack that on. Boy, oh boy. I don't know if Auburn comes back. Um, they had the 81 yard um, punt return, which on the next play, I think Herbert fumbled. Now that negated a score of, of at least three points. So I, I came away saying, yeah, they left 10 points on the board in the first half at least. So I don't know if that's coaching because they they did a lot of good things to get to get to where they were. You know, Auburn was in desperation mode on that last possession. They they picked up a fourth and three by the nose of a football. I don't know if that's coaching. In fact, I know it's not. It was just a great play by Bo Nix just lunging forward. Uh, they go for the touchdown at the end instead of the field goal. I thought that was or that that was look for Gus. I thought that was not good. <laughs> and I, and I, I stand by that. I, I agree a, with you. I thought that was a terrible call. When they've got one of the, the country's best kickers, and it's a tremendously risky call, I, I, there were, I think there were about 
Well, there was enough time on the clock where if, if there's a sack or something, the clock runs out. You got no shot. Uh, or you get intercepted. Instead of doing the safe thing and take care of the ball and kick the field goal, it, it reminded me of Les Miles got torn up for a game in maybe 07 against, oh, who was it? Uh, it may have been against Auburn where they threw into the end zone with three seconds left instead of taking the chip shot field goal to win the game. If the receiver drops it, bobbles it, sack, interception, the game's over. But, you know, I mean, Gus is coaching for something larger than Saturday night. He's coaching for his job every week. So I guess that was his, you know, not middle finger, but his statement like, hey, we're going for this whether you like it or not. So good for him. But I, I thought it was I, th- I thought it was a you know, not a smart play at the time. Do Auburn fans feel any or I guess maybe fans aren't the ones that really matter in this decision making process, but you get to spend a lot of time around staffers, around the beat mm-hmm. writers who cover the program. Like what's the what is the temperature on um, sort of how the the people close to the program feel about this conundrum where uh, you've got Gus Malzahn reports are that there's there is not a full 100% support behind him throughout the community you know where did, did you get that sense heading into the game and do you think the result changes anything at all yeah I, I talked to some of the people that cover the team in the off season when I was hearing this stuff and I was told there was absolutely a faction of fans or boosters or what have you people that matter let's say that a very large portion that would not have blinked at the 20 million plus buyout that it would have taken to get rid of him and he held on we know he held on but it's going to be a week-to-week thing now which is nothing new Barton you know this I mean it seems like every year with Gus and I keep and I've now I'm to the point where I just kind of feel sorry for the guy there's only three people, three or four people walking the earth that have beaten Nick Saban twice. He's done it. He's won a championship as a coordinator. He played for one as a head coach. You know, tell me, you know, who out there Auburn could have gotten that could have matched that. There are, look, at the end of the day, they're Auburn. And as much money and resources as they throw into that, they're going, you know, head-to-head against Alabama every day, recruiting against them, playing them, um, scouting them. So I, I actually think Auburn's fortunate to, to have Gus. And he had, remember, he had this chance, oh, whatever it was, December of 17, seven years for $49 million at Auburn, same number at Arkansas. He chose Auburn. I, I thought that was telling. His agent told me, Jimmy Sexton, I said, why, you know, curious, why Auburn at the time? And he said he felt more comfortable there. And I, th- I thought that was odd. You know, he, he could have gone eight and four the rest of his life at Arkansas and been a hero. If he goes eight and four once at Auburn, he might be fired. <laughs> but I, I don't feel sorry for him anymore because right. he's—I mean, he's—he's he's handsomely paid for one, and yep. secondly, like this is just the like. I, I feel like maybe over the last couple of years, uh, we've gotten to the point where Gus, like, it doesn't. None of this stuff. My hunch is I don't—I don't sit on the yeah. in the in the in the dining room table with him, but. My hunch is none of this stuff phases him anymore. It's just like, yeah, yeah, I'm on the hot seat. I've been on the hot seat. What's new? Let's go. Let's go try to be Bama. Yeah. And so it feels like he's he's gotten like almost comfortable in this in this role. And then kind of like you said, like with that with that call to to throw it in field goal range, it's almost like a you know he sort of walks around with his you know double birds like all the time. <laughs> just, kinda, just just hey, feeling good, man. Hey, I'm. I'm I, 
live or die. We're, we're just gonna we're just gonna have fun or whatever. Like it's just sort of that. Just seems like his new vibe. I agree. Uh, that's a great story idea. Um, you know, a, a younger Gus would have lined up and kicked that field goal and walked away. But he t- he feels this. Maybe it's a weird sort of security. Like you know, the ultimate security. He's gonna get his money one one of two ways. It doesn't. You know, he would just like to be coaching someplace to to get it. Sure. He, he's a little um, callous. Think, he's a he's a little emotionally calloused from all this. Yeah, probably. that's right. Yeah, I, I th- another part of this is people were asking me how good Auburn is after this. I still don't think they're a very good team. I, <laughs> I think they're the third or fourth best team in the West. This isn't a top ten team. They've got they've got issues. Um, they've got a true freshman quarterback who's just learning on the job and pulled pulled one out of his you know what. I think he's going to be really really good. And he's a try-hard guy, but you don't want to go into fourth quarter of every game with your quarterback nine of twenty-five. I think their their running game is average. Their defensive line is really good, um, you know. But is that enough to sustain you when you hit the meat of the schedule? And maybe this is forming calluses around the Auburn team, and they, they'll be fine. But I think that that's the overarching thing here. Like this isn't over. You know, this drama we're talking about. It's it literally is going to go week to week. I as as an uninvested observer, I love mm-hmm. it. I'll take all the drama week <laughs> to week. Let's go. All right. So you left uh, Arlington and then you headed north and you arrived in Norman for the Jalen Hurts show. And there was uh, an interesting contrast between a record setting type debut production, incredible statistics, but then also a tone from, from Jalen Hurts and Lincoln Riley. We addressed it a little bit in yesterday's show. The The tone of the conversation and even into Monday's uh, week two press conferences was that it was like, yeah, we that – that that wasn't it. We can we can do better. We can do more. And you know, there's something to be said for that. Just being the right thing to say. That's definitely on the script of uh, a team that's trying to go win a national championship. You know, even even Jalen Hurts. Uh, you know, we we were on September third. That was yesterday. We're recording on Wednesday morning. He he used rat poison. He's you know he he's just bringing <laughs> he's bringing all of the talking points from uh, from Alabama with them in terms of not being willing to accept anything. And so let's let's just sort of dive into like the performance, what you saw, your general impressions of uh, of Jalen Hurts in his debut against Houston. Yeah, to to the oh, average Oklahoma fan, this is all about okay, wh- who is this Jalen Hurts we're getting? You know, skeptical because the standard was two straight Heisman's. I mean, anybody else would go, hey, we got a championship quarterback. They wanted to know compared to two seventy percent passers. I don't have to tell you how good those guys were. Who is Jalen Hurts? And then secondly, the defense, because they got a new coordinator, uh, Alex Grinch. They were terrible last year, one of the worst defenses in Oklahoma history that, by the way, went to the playoff. Um, and, and I don't, you know, I think maybe one of those questions were answered. I Jalen Hurts was, had the best performance of the weekend, and I, to me, proved it's realistic. He could win a third straight Heisman at Oklahoma. That would be unprecedented, obviously. He's a different player. We didn't know. Not only did Oklahoma fan, nobody knew because all we saw last year was a was a nice relief job against Georgia, and in that small sample size, boy, he looks really confident and throwing the ball in windows, whatever. Well, that's exactly what happened. Uh, that's who he is now. I've forgotten, you know, I, he's a better thrower, and I'd forgotten how good a runner he is. Now I think he ran, I want to say he ran sixteen times for one hundred and seventy-eight yards. I don't know if you want to run him 16 times 
every game, and, and they won't, but and, and a consummate leader. Uh, you can see that after the game. You can see it during the game. And so Oklahoma on the fast track, I think, for another, uh, you know, an, a, another playoff appearance, you know, pending what, what, uh, what statement Texas makes against LSU. But, uh, and then the, the defense, you know, in the talk shows today later, there was a lot of criticism of the defense. They gave up 31, but I, I thought they were better. It was the, they posted the, uh, the first two series by Houston were three and out. They didn't do that all last season in the first two possessions of the opponents all of last season. So that itself was progress. But but they were better. Um, you know, maybe there were a lot of garbage points there because Oklahoma was ahead so much. But, no, I I, I came away with uh, Jalen Hurts is going to be fantastic and, and the defense is at least a little bit better. Question for both of you guys. Not, I'm not talking Vegas odds where the best value is or anything like that. I'm talking about right now, gun to your head, your life depends on it. Who wins the Heisman Trophy this year? Uh, I, I think Trevor will. No, um, oh no, I'm I'm definitely out on Trevor winning the Heisman. I think. Well, I think based on one game, I, I, it wasn't great, but you you I, you think Tra- Travis Atn will take votes away, probably, right? I I think that in production away. I mean, I think yeah. Clemson yeah. will will do a lot of. Uh, playing not to lose, and I think they'll do not that they'll be like down, but I think they'll be defending leads. Like Trevor, he won't play. Yeah, he won't play many fourth quarters. Or, or yeah. you know, Trevor Lawrence throws a couple touchdown passes early in every single game, and then Dabo's like, "All right, well, we're just going to run the ball for the next three quarters." And yeah. Travis Etienne runs off a couple of those, yeah, uh, you know, breaks off a couple of those runs. I mean, I'm, I, I'm Jalen Hurts. I, I believe, yeah. I believe okay. it's Jalen Hurts. All right. Well, well, that's where I'm at. It's like, all right, the fu- if the future of the universe depends on me making the right decision here and picking the right person, why, like, how could I pick anyone but Jalen Hurts, given what Lincoln Riley has shown he can do with the last two quarterbacks, and now Jalen Hurts in week one shows that he's capable of operate. I mean, and I, I didn't really think he wasn't, wasn't, but like, you know, he showed now that he's capable, and he showed now not only that, but he showed that he's they're, they're going to utilize all of his strength. They're going to run with him as well. Like, I, obviously, I mean, it's not – I mean, obviously this there's, there's plenty of season to go and all that. That goes without saying. But, like, it's just it, the Lincoln-Riley angle of this and, and the fact that he has truly done it yeah. two consecutive years, and now he has another really elite quarterback, and it looks like he's going to have another really elite offense. It's almost like how can – like, how can you pick anyone but Jalen Hurts if you're just trying to play the odds? Yeah, that that's a good point because he is – I mean, breaking that game down, what I saw from Jalen Hurts is not only did they call these plays for him, but he executed them. He can throw the out pass, which the NFL scouts will tell you is one of the biggest evaluating things that they look for. And I'm not saying Jalen Hurts is going to be in the NFL or be a great quarterback. I'm just saying he can make those long out passes which are hard to do for any quarterback at any level, NFL included. Um, and he did. I mean, he dropped the dime down the middle to C.D. Lamb's 65 yards. You know, it, he wasn't just throwing it up for – who is it? Who would have been – Calvin Ridley, I guess, back then. He's got a bunch of, he's got a bunch of targets at Oklahoma, not just, not just a home run hitter and Calvin Ridley that he did at Alabama. So it's good. It's going to help him look good. It, it, check me if I'm wrong. Lincoln Riley is not – exactly the guy because of the league he's in to take his foot off the pedal. I think there'll be plenty of chances for him to run up numbers in the big 12. 
Oh yeah, without a doubt. What? All right. So what about this? Uh, you've got we and uh, and we will be getting a much better look at Texas this weekend. Do you think that the Oklahoma team that you saw has distance from where it is versus where Texas and the rest of the Big Twelve is? I have to see more of Texas. Um, you know the. The first game, I, I don't know if I learned enough. This is going to be a monumental game for them against LSU. Biggest game at Austin, they say, since 2006 when, they, when Ohio State came in and beat them. I, I need to see that before I before I decide. I, I think it, it'll be OU and Texas playing twice, I'll put it that way, in the Big 12. But, uh, but I don't know. I, I have to see this weekend's games. Do you find yourself uh, – so this weekend you're going to be headed to Clemson for Clemson, Texas A&M. The, the point spread out here is at 17 and a half. Yeah, Do you think yeah. that represents uh, – well, what, what does that point spread say to you and, uh, and are you able to – are you even able to look at this game and break it down while ignoring that? Or like to me, I, I wrote a preview – for uh, for the website with this, and and I was able to pull out all these interesting angles and and review everything that happened in uh, you know last year's game, 430 passing yards for Kellen Mond, and and look, this is a Clemson defense that no longer has those three uh, NFL draft first round picks, and you know, sure it looks like uh, Texas A&M might be able to move the ball on them just a little bit, but to to still see that. 17 and a half is a uh, is a little bit jarring to me and like are you able to separate what might be one of the toughest tests that Clemson's going to face all year and also what this uh, what the odds makers are saying about the matchup yeah I think the toughest test in the regular season what gives you pause on the on the uh, point spread is obviously Texas A&M gave them the toughest test they had last year uh, two-pointer uh, could have gone either way at the end in, in the six games before that, talking about Clemson, and the 14 games after that, I think only two teams have been within double digits. Two other teams have been within double digits. And they're winning games now by, you know, three an average of three touchdowns going back to 2017, those last 20, 21 games. And, and look, it's, a, it's, it's the nation's best team at home in Death Valley. I mean, I think that's enough said. Uh you know, rational people can discuss the point spread, and that's a hard bet. I think that's a hard bet because I think Texas A&M is a quality team. But as Jimbo and A&M is finding out, you know, in in that division, you can be really, really good and go eight and four. And that's kind of what happened A&M last year. Although Kellen Mond now, I think, is a is a different level. Uh, but I don't think he's good enough to uh, to lead a charge at uh, Clemson this week. This is what's fun about this this point in the season is we really don't know anything about anybody like there's a couple teams we know a little bit about because they had you know we know a little bit about Auburn we know a little bit about Oregon Mm -hmm. that's about it and like right now 17 and a half is such a a huge number in this game and like Texas A&M is it that is it is it that does it take that much of a stretch of the imagination to believe Texas A&M is a top five team in the country they, they could, uh, I think they could be right. I mean, we don't. I'm not saying they are, but I'm saying, like, what if they go and beat Clemson? It's, I mean, it's that's is that not possible that they could beat Clemson this weekend? Sure, I, sure that's, it is. Yeah. That's strange to me that this line is that big, and that uh, I mean, I don't know. I guess I think it could be a really good game. Do you? Do you? Do you not, Dennis? Do you think that this is 
probably going to be just another Clemson uh, boat race? I, I think it is, but you know, I, I know t- again Texas A and M's better, but that's all relative when you're playing Clemson and everybody in the in the SEC West. Um, you know, they they showed really well against Texas State, but it was Texas State. So, um, yeah, I, I guess what the discussion is, is can you see it under 17 and a half? And of course you can. You know, um, it's going to that defensive line for Clemson is going to be tested, you know, like it was not last week against Georgia Tech. So, yeah, I, if, yeah. And if they win, obviously, yes, they're going to be in the top 10 or, or higher. But it's just it's hard seeing Texas A&M make that breakthrough win, I guess, this week. I don't know if they're ready for it. Barton, I would say the to sort of answer your like like what what about Texas A and M? Like let's forget about Clemson. Like is it that crazy to imagine where Texas A and M is? So there have been fourteen games in the Jimbo Fisher era. Texas A and M is ten and four in those fourteen games. But if you're looking for like a signature win, like something where you're like wow, like that was you know that was the best win that they have. The best win. Is that 74, 72, yeah. seven overtime, just like marathon slugfest with LSU? And not that they should, you know, not that that should come with an asterisk, but I probably do uh, hang a little bit of a, man, that game was weird. That was a, that was a wild end of season. Like by the end of the game, it wasn't even football. Like they were just yeah. like bodies were dropping left and right. And so I go back and I'm like, all right, well, what do they have? And they've got, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's the old quality loss. They've got a quality loss to Clemson by two where they had a two point conversion to potentially tie it. Uh, and they've got a, and they've got a couple other performances where they were competitive, but ultimately fell short. And like, uh, like against Alabama, there was maybe a quarter and a half and maybe even a whole half where they were right there. Kellen Mond broke off a couple big runs. They found the end zone early, and then Alabama just sort of blitzed them over the last two and a half quarters. And so until we get that quality win, that just like that we just rise up against a team that you're not supposed to beat and lay them down, I, I think I'm in a wait-and-see mode before I'm willing to say Texas A&M's a top-five team. No, I'm in a – I mean, and, and don't give me – like I'm not saying they're a top-five team. I guess what I'm saying is – is th- this this point in the season we don't really like la- this this point last year Wisconsin was ranked number four in the country, right? Like there there was <laughs> fair. you know very US, fair yes yes U- USC was was still pinned to my Twitter profile as in my college football playoff predictions. You know like there there this point in the season we really don't know who these teams are, and so I'm just I I'm just make that statement as as this fascination with the fact that you know to texas a&m like might be a juggernaut team in hiding right now and i'm not saying they are i'm not predicting they are but i'm just saying like it that is well within the realm of possibility to me considering they have a quarterback they have uh they've, they've got a really big physical line of scrimmage um I, i'm so I, I mean we'll find out i mean i'm not like i said i'm not even predicting anything so i don't know you know, maybe this is a stupid talking point, but I'm just very curious about this weekend because we don't really know. Like Texas A&M might be really good. Well, all that all that being true, uh, I'll give you all that. If they beat Clemson, look look who they had. I still just say this could be the world's best eight and fourteen. Look who they have to get through. 
They get Auburn to, Auburn at home in week four. Uh, two weeks later, Alabama. They play. They finish the season. What a schedule! Finish the season in back-to-back weeks at Georgia at LSU. Forget the fatigue factor. If you started off the season like that, people would be going, "What the heck?" So that I mean, this to me is, you know, one sentence on A and M: the the world's best eight and four team. Um, yeah. You know, wh- whether or not they they beat Clemson because it's going to be tough. Um, Barton, you mentioned USC. So before uh, Dennis, we get you out of here. This this is probably going to be a regular feature because uh, I I don't think that the drama or the saga in Los Angeles is um is ever, is going to end um, anytime soon. I mean this has basically been running for about a decade and uh, and and just like all of our favorite shows they keep renewing it. So um, what how do you forecast the immediate and long term future of the USC football program? Uh, not good. Um, when they, when JT Daniels went down, that just added another, another level of negativity, uh, to, and and I I view everything there now, the 35,000 foot view. Yeah. They, they've got Stanford this week, a big PAC 12 game, but who do you trust on campus, uh, to lead this program from where it is, uh, whether they have to make a coaching change or not, who on campus can hire you're going to have to hire another AD to hire the new coach. Okay, let's let's make that assumption because I, you know, for everything I hear about Lynn Swan is he's not qualified, frankly, to be the AD, among other things. Who who are you going to get, you know, to hire the next coach, whether it's Urban or whoever? That that's where I am with with USC because now it's like it's like almost the football is almost secondary because they're not going to win at any level with a backup quarterback, you know, running these RPOs. And Barton, maybe you can fill us in on the backup because I know nothing about him. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's going to be tough, and, and for the Pac-12 in general. But one of the, one of their biggest games, both starting quarterbacks might be out. Yeah, it's so Keaton Slovis. Obviously, mm-hmm. he's a true freshman. But what what's I think interesting about him is he beat out two upperclassmen that for the backup job that. I've got a little bit of experience. I mean, Jack Sears and Matt Fink mm-hmm. are both guys I would have expected to win that backup job. Slovis was a good high school prospect, not a not a great one. Um, doesn't mean he won't be a great college football player. So I'm I'm a little bit intrigued by this as well. On the flip side for Stanford, like uh, Davis Mills is actually the number one quarterback in the country coming out of high school, mm-hmm. uh, above above Fromm and Tua and those guys, and so. Uh, he's dealt with injury issues, so this is going to be. And I've heard really good things from people I talked to at Stanford. So this is going to be an interesting, um, interesting showcase for him um, to see whether he can live up to some of the, that uh, that hype. For a, a quick question for both you guys. Uh, okay, so KJ Costello is questionable for Stanford. Do, does it raise any red flags that you know traditionally the the visiting team in these games brings their officials. The the Big Ten crew called personal foul on the Northwestern defensive end on the hit to put him out. It was, it was a Big Ten replay crew. The play wasn't even reviewed. Play wasn't even stopped. We're talking about a kid who had his helmet ripped off, a forearm to the throat, and it wasn't even reviewed for targeting. They could have called targeting. They could have tossed him out. And yesterday um, – David Shaw said they, they, they missed it. 
you know, he didn't go there with the politics of, you know, a Big Ten crew doing the game. But I think we're going to see more of that in this world where everything is scrutinized. Wait a minute. A Big Ten crew is doing the game and that happened. And I'm not casting aspersions at all, but these conferences want to remove any hint of impropriety. I thought that was really curious. I think that I I saw a lot of bad officiating in week one. Mm-hmm. I I don't. I mean, you you're right. Like you, if you want to connect those dots and make a deal of it, then you know because it was a missed call, because it was a very important missed call and one that you know didn't impact the outcome of the game in Northwestern's favor, but certainly impacted the the rest of Stanford's season and you know what Stanford could do with the rest of the game. But I I just. Watching a lot of football this weekend, there was a lot of bad officiating. It was kind of like a, you know, the phrase "it's week one for everybody." The officials too. Um, so I'm, I would stop short of trying to uh, think that the Big Ten was looking out for their own there. No, I, I don't. I don't say. I'm not saying it's a conspiracy theory. I'm just saying let's let's come on. Let's remove any hint of impropriety and get neutral officials for all these non-conference games on campus. I mean, I, I don't think it's that hard. Just like bowl games. Gotcha. Uh, he is Dennis Dodd. You can follow him on Twitter at Dennis Dodd CBS. Dennis, thank you very much. Thanks, guys.